Welcome to episode 6 of the Wholesome Business Podcast. I'm Tom Greenwood and in this episode I'm joined in the broom cupboard with my whole grain digital colleague and friend Ed Murphitt and we talk to Will Gardner, the CEO of the popular sustainability website collectively.org. We share the same office space with Collectively and we've been doing web development work for them in recent months. But this was the first time that we had the opportunity to really sit down and talk in detail about the organisation of Collectively itself. It was really interesting to talk to Will and as we spoke to him it became clear that there's a lot more substance below the surface than might at first be apparent and it was a really interesting conversation and we were really glad that we had this opportunity to sit down with Will. Thanks for coming in, Will. I'm Pleasure. Busy. So we started working with you, you know, only a few months back, and um, we were really excited when we first spoke to Sammy, um, and he kind of explained to us what you guys were doing, and he said that it had come out of, uh, is it, was it the World Economic Forum in, in Davos? That's correct, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we really enjoyed working with you, um, but <laughs> we're really interested to know sort of what, more about what the history is. I've only had a very brief sort of intro from Sammy, so could you tell us sort of where Collective.org sure. came from and what its objective is? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd kind of origin story. So um, what it was was that back in, I think originally January 2013, uh, in Davos, in the World Economic Forum's kind of annual meeting in Davos, um, there were discussions amongst companies of the Consumer Industries Board in Davos uh, about how they can play a role in acting more sustainably and promoting sustainability. And those discussions turned from more supply side stuff like supply chains, factories and CO2 emissions, etc. Yeah. Through to talking more about their role in developing demand for sustainable living. Right. Um, and because you know, in the end, uh, some of these big companies, so they're companies like uh, Unilever, BT, Marks and Spencer, Coca-Cola, Carlsberg. What a lot of them got in common is that a lot of the impacts that they have in sustainability terms are actually in consumer use. Yeah. So, uh, for example, uh, Unilever has mapped its entire kind of value chain in terms of carbon emissions, and 70% of carbon emissions are actually in consumer use of the products. Right. So it's things like people taking showers and using shampoo, it's people washing clothes uh, with their you know, um, washing machine, yeah. people boiling kettles and having a cup of tea. You know, and that's where it all happens. Actually, only 3% of their carbon emissions comes from factories. So it was quite surprising, really. Yeah. So in the end, um, what these companies were all agreeing on was that if they were going to develop more sustainable marketplaces for the future, that they need to uh, play a role in um, both innovating for sustainability and promoting sustainability, etc., and starting to bring the consumer from a place of reasonable apathy to yeah. the whole agenda, something where actually they were requiring and asking for more stable products and services. Yeah, okay. So they're sort of in creating the market for, the, for these more sustainable services so that they can justify it from a business point of view. Well, like yeah, so that then when they the... develop some innovations in that space, they do actually get bought, for yeah. example, as opposed to languishing on the shelves and everyone wonders what the green version's about or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that was where it started. And there were five companies, those ones I mentioned, which took it as a project idea, as a collaborative project idea, and said, let's start to develop um, a digital media platform 
uh, that could engage uh, younger peoples, the so-called millennial generation, um, in uh, making sustainable ways of living, the kind of the new normal amongst yeah. that generation. Um, and that was where it uh, first started. And um, as with a lot of collaborations, it started slowly. Um, but starts to get some wind when uh, in late 2013 there was a pitch done and then Vice Media came on board as the main kind of content development and platform partner. And then it went back to Davos again and said, here's our idea, here's our concept, what we want yeah. to do. A lot of other organisations, including some NGOs, were very interested. So it was at that point there was a kind of a green light to go to launch and on we went. Great, great. So... Um so how did it actually kind of form into the format that it is now? Because it's, it's sort of primarily a magazine format. Um, was that how it started out? Or yeah, I mean, that... the, the original thought was that it would be very much um, based on the power of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, so um, there was an original piece of multi-country research that was done amongst uh, the millennial generation all around attitudes to sustainable lifestyles. And... What came back loud and clear was that sustainability and sustainable lifestyles would have seen as being uh, a bit niche, uh, you know, a bit worthy, yeah. a bit dull, sometimes expensive. A lot of the language around it, such as kind of people talking about environmentalists and eco-warriors, uh, etc., um, felt to this generation to be a little bit, you know, that of the past. Yeah. Um, and and didn't really resonate with how they wanted to see some of these challenges of the world. Um, so what became clear was that especially if you want to reach the kind of the mainstream and take it out of this 10 to 15% niche that it's been sitting in for a long, long while, yeah. you need to present and talk about sustainable living in a very different kind of way. So kind of change the conversation. So that was why we went to, to Vice, because they've you know, built a track record in developing very uh, engaging and kind of culture-defining content in the, the news agenda and in music and food, etc. Yeah. So the brief device was, do the same with sustainability. You know, <laughs> see if you can infuse it with that sense of kind of cultural zeitgeist and magic that you've done with a lot of other things. Yeah. So that was the, the starting point. Um, and actually, funnily enough, the original uh, kind of brand name that um, was bandied around was actually Future Awesome. Okay. That was that was what it was originally called when I uh, first you know took up the project myself at the beginning of 2014, and the um, and that I suppose in a way shows you the roots of the project. It really was about yeah. trying to kind of almost tempt people by those you know new ideas that are starting to kind of um, break out around the world that might still seem very exciting, very innovative, but not mainstream. And yeah. how could we mainstream those really cool? engaging desirable ideas um a little bit like some new form of music kind of pops up in some kind of you know cultural niche and then gradually mainstreams over time in the same kind of way yeah so that was the idea um but as we neared launch and actually we tested future awesome in three different countries and it bombed uh <laughs> badly in america ironically and in the uk even though in india they 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 uh they liked the name um so we started looking for other names and literally about two weeks before we launched uh, you know, in just the last sweat, worry and panic of naming, uh, you know, the whole of the platform was ready, but without the logos, and without <laughs> the names, you know, it was very, very worrying in those final days. Um, 
somebody I think from Vice said, you know, went back through the list of names. And how about that name collectively that we rejected six months ago? And we all just went, yeah, let's just let's just do it. You know, is it available? Let's just do it. And the funny thing is that as a name, it's then taken on life of its own because the reason why it resonated was that by that time we launched, we had. Uh, 28 extraordinary corporate partners that we'd managed to kind of get on this journey, you know, um, and often competing. So we had Pepsi and Coke, Unilever and Nestle, uh, Facebook and Google, uh, five of the world's top advertising networks that never talk to each other, you know, etc. And um, so there was this idea of kind of collective spirit and collaboration and organisations kind of leaving their swords at the door and kind of going yeah. to walk into a pre-competitive space, as sustainability people call it, that is truly exciting to shape a better future. Yeah, and so they're working together to actually create a market that they everyone can benefit from. Um, well, yeah, and that's what that's what it um, developed into. Because even though uh, the starting place was all about content and storytelling, uh, with through both text and and video, quite quickly, um, both our audience and some of our corporate partners were saying you know what, it's not enough just to tell stories, yeah. you know, um, just to be journalistic, uh, because we're not convinced enough that, that we're using, especially those organisations, their best capabilities. So um, I think that the, the trigger for our next phase was when there was a young guy from uh, Google who just said, uh, who looked at all the logos that we had in terms of partners and said, wow, if all those companies getting together, they better drop a bomb on us. And what he meant by was, you know, as a generation, we expect yeah. more of them than just to be participating in a storytelling platform. Yeah. Um, so we went to Sky and said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, God, you know, if you could get, you know, Unilever, Google and GE to come up with some innovation that kind of, you know, solves problems or, um, you know, starts to develop some opportunities sustainable living you know well they should be able to do anything how about coco's distribution system how about you know google's digital reach yeah uh etc so that made us really think wow we should be doing collaborative innovation uh alongside the storytelling okay so you become more than just a sort of online platform but actually it's sort of a hub that facilitates a relationship between these partners and also with the sort of the millennial consumer group yeah that's right i mean uh, you know in the end the the starting point has um, has always got to be uh, the kind of intersection between what the world needs and what the millennial generation wants. Yeah, you know, that's always how we, you know, that kind of like bit of the Venn diagram is always uh, what we say we're exploring and wanting to, to kind of amplify. Yeah. Um, and so when we do bring our partners together either virtually or in rooms and we're now doing these things called collectively labs to explore these opportunities the first place we start is number one we want to fill the room with younger people yeah. rather than have a whole bunch of you know kind of uh, older white guys in gray suits um, sitting around the table as as often happens and secondly uh, we uh, want to start with uh, insight you know let's really understand um, you know some of the life tensions the hopes fears dreams you know what gets in the way of living in the way I want to live and then gradually bring into the conversation um, the sustainability requirements the kind of simple development goals and trying yeah. to understand how they interact so for example um, you know a lot of us are aware that um, 
you know there's a there's a big challenge with you know the the cost cost pressures of younger people living in cities yeah you know so um versus 20 years ago people now leaving university with account amounts of student debt you know living in cities sitting there and saying well my rent is so high that I can't even dream of starting to save for a deposit. Yeah. Um, so I think the stat is now that 30% of uh, 30-year-olds in London still are living with mum and dad. You know, so that's a huge generational shift. Yeah. And therefore, if you're thinking about how to live sustainably within the home, you've got to factor that in when working with and talking to this generation, which is very different from if you were talking to a bunch of 45-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So collectively, sort of becoming um, almost a sort of sort of innovation incubator to some extent. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, um, I mean, it's it could be to do with you know genuine innovation, coming up with something new, or equally, it could be just discovering uh, something that's already well shaped that our partner organisations can play a role in scaling up. Yeah. But the key to both of those things is that our kind of millennial participants say this is good you know yeah. we want this uh, this is not foisted upon us in a kind of top-down way but actually we're saying this is something that we want to have in our lives because it's fun it's desirable it's good for the world yeah have or, or will the the labs include the partner representatives of the partner organizations and following on from that uh, have you what kind of sort of concrete um Examples are there of of the of the partner organisations really demonstrating that they want to work together in this? Yeah, no, both good questions. So, um, in terms of the labs, yes, I mean each lab probably has about two thirds of the participants are from the partner companies, um, and as many of them as we can muster are probably under the age of thirty five. But yeah. you can't always drive that exactly. Um, Oh, I see. So that those labs are mainly about getting the partner organisations together. Yeah, they are. Right. They are. Okay. Because in the end, if the partner organisations are going to be asked into you course to help scale something up, yeah. either because they are media organisations or tech organisations or product organisations, and they're using some of their skills and capabilities, then they've got to be involved from the start. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to look at some initiative and kind of go, well, you know, why should we? You know, they aren't vested. Um, and they're excited by that. I mean, if you, um, yeah, the, the thing we're doing a lot more of now than we were at the start is to systematically go to our partners and say, what are your strategic themes in the, the kind of, in a way, you know, um, social good and environmental areas? Um, and we're very much helped with that by the, the single development goals yeah. because, you know, that almost just gives you a framework and you can go to any of these companies and just like say, right, tick the box on which of these you, you really care about. Yeah. And there will be some, typically tech, tech companies, that will say education. Yeah. And within education, they'll say STEM subjects. And within that, they'll say girls. All right. And you kind of go, yeah, okay, fine, Salesforce, Yahoo, Google, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And then there'll be others which will say, um, you know, sustainable consumption, in particular, recycling, circular economy. Kind of go, yeah. great, you know, got you guys, et cetera. And then what we can do is start to cluster them together according to the areas they really want to work in. Yeah. And we find, to your second question, that is way more successful than if we try to pick one initiative and get all 28 companies to get excited about it. Yeah, yeah. We did attempt that at the end of last year with the project that you guys were involved in around We Got Power. Um, so that was really about bringing the millennial uh, voice demanding clean energy 
together with an organisational readiness to take it on themselves and say, right, we are, as a Unilever or Google, going to commit to 100% renewable energy in our operations. So that was the way that that mechanic worked. And actually, we had about 10 partner companies that really got behind that quite solidly. But then there were another 18 that kind of said, you know, not here, not now, not the right time, not our agenda, etc. And that's fine. Because in the end, we're now realising that clustering around interest topics is way more powerful. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So how do you find, how do you maintain that balance between collectively as an organisation trying to sort of drive a more sustainable future and, and sort of engage the millennials in actually looking to collectively as a sort of a really great organisation that they want to interact with? Um, and at the same time, maintaining relationships with these big companies that perhaps some of these millennials may be sceptical of. Mm. Um, how do you find that? How do you maintain that balance between serving, delivering value to the corporate partners who are obviously funding you, um, while at the same time actually retaining credibility with the, the millennials? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, it is um, harder in some areas than others. Yeah. Um, so um, definitely, there's there are some, I suppose kind of agenda points as it were to do with sustainability where actually there's a there's an equal desire I think amongst often big companies and you know uh, NGOs of course who we shouldn't forget all to pass this mix and and millennials they all come together so uh, an example of that is um is all about gender gender equality and diversity yeah so it's a massive millennial passion point uh equally companies totally know that if they aren't on top of that agenda they've got to shape up so they're equally desirous to make that happen even if there's a little bit of pain along the way Um, that in some ways is quite an easy one there are others which probably are more difficult because some of the the more activist minded amongst the millennial population definitely will point towards some big companies and go you're not nearly doing enough Um, so that might sometimes be for example, in the food sector, that, that can be the case, especially with, say, fast food, yeah. you know, beef, and these kinds of issues. Or it might be sometimes within fashion. Um, you know, recently, there sometimes has been some kind of issues around things like uh, renewable energy and data centers with some of the big tech companies. Yeah. So, you know, these issues do come up. And the only, I think, way that we can uh, try to manage it within collectively is to... Um, on the one hand, kind of represent the voice of young people to those companies like we did with the We Got Power campaign. Yeah. Um, not doing it in a kind of an angry and combative way, but saying, look, we're, we're helping you hear what people are saying. Yeah. Um, and, and say to the companies, guys, you are in a much better place by being transparent and honest about where you are on the journey than trying to kind of greenwash your way through Pretend the problem. Pretend that you're already yeah. perfect. Yeah. yeah, so we're we're definitely big champions of transparency and we'll always say to our audience, guys, the fact that these companies are coming to the table and are willing to be a bit transparent and get involved in the dialogue is a good thing. So let's not kind of, let's not, you know, push them away. Yeah. Uh, let's just carry on celebrating and encouraging greater levels of transparency and dialogue. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds good. So in terms of the editorial team, um, I mean, how do you find people who, just from a recruitment point of view, how do you find people who are sort of engaged with the audience, the sort of right sort of age group, also engaged with the topics, um, 
and who can sort of create the sort of the buzz that you need to get people excited. Yeah, well, I mean, it's um, it's never easy because you're absolutely right that you know ultimately you need people who uh, you know are part of this generation, but also really understand the whole sustainability field, um, and ideally have got a little bit of a sense of cool about them because <laughs> our whole job is to make this you know, just desirable and exciting and something other people want to be part of. So we, if ever we kind of tread over, you know, into a level of preachiness or worthiness or dullness, then we know we're lost. Um, and and that isn't easy. So if any of your listeners are listening and thinking, I can do that job, then of course get in touch with Collectively. But, the, <laughs> um, uh, but we do have a great team. Um, actually, the original situation with Collectively was that our editorial team was incubated by Vice Media in Brooklyn in the USA. Okay. That was how it all started. Um, and then uh, we started to realise that given the rest of the team was in London, that it was quite challenging uh, having, you know, in a startup situation, kind of teams with 3,000 miles of sea between us. So we decided to build an editorial team here in the UK um, and then we gradually kind of closed down the team in the USA and they went off to other jobs within Vice. Yeah. Um, and so that's been a great learning for us in terms of, uh, you know, recruiting uh, people with these kinds of skills. Um, and actually, you know, not all of our team are millennial, yeah. but what they do need to have is a real feel, of course, for what uh, resonates. So, you know, our editor um, has only recently just come from a job at Time Out and he fundamentally knows how to gets knows it. how to talk he gets it he's he's in there um and that's that's the really key thing yeah yeah and um so you mentioned obviously the vice post in brooklyn you're here in london now and you also mentioned when you're testing names you test them in the u.s in the uk and in india so what's the sort of audience because it's obviously an english language website um is it is it kind of predominantly UK US focused or do you yeah, yeah. target other countries? So we uh, launched uh, fifteen months ago just in the US and the UK just because um, we want to get out there yeah. and English language was just kind of the easiest place to start. And a lot of our current corporate partners are you know either European or US domiciled companies, even though they're global. Um, so that was where we started, but we absolutely have the ambition to uh, to go way beyond. Um, and we know from research that actually amongst this generation, the level of excitement about the sustainability agenda actually, if anything, is higher in the likes of India and Brazil in particular yeah. than it is necessarily in, say, the UK or the USA, mainly because of two things, really. Um, you know, one being that often uh, people are you know, living with the consequences in a much more real way in their everyday lives. If yeah. you live nowadays in Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, you are living every day with power outages, with uh, flooding often, uh, with um, big issues with pollution, yeah. you know, and that brings some of these issues home for you in yeah. a way that somebody who, you know, lives in uh, Notting Hill might not necessarily uh, immediately appreciate. So... Um, so, so we're keen uh, to move. It's just a question of uh, capacity and when the time is right, because we've got a lot on. Yeah, yeah. And are they kind of strategic markets from the corporate partners' point of view as well? That you know, obviously Brazil and India are very big. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, companies. definitely going into kind of big markets um, obviously helps from just a scalability point of view. India makes sense. The next one because definitely we can start at least in India as an English language yeah. uh, site. Um, 
and a number of our corporate partners have got a very big presence in India, including the likes of Unilever and Coca-Cola, etc., uh, which which also helps. Um, so, um, so that is our uh, our plan. But we've already, uh, with our last campaign at the end of last year, we tested um, some Facebook promotion in India yeah. to be able to take our messages there and. Uh, and they resonated very well. Definitely, the kind of the level of audience reaction and kind of return investment was definitely equal in India, if not better, than we saw in our other two markets. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So, um, I was going to ask you about Hub Westminster. So, it's where we are now. We use it as our office. You use it as your office. How did you? How did you come to sort of be based here in this co-working space? And, and how have you found it as a sort of the, the reality now that you're actually in here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we. Um, started collectively's life by just working out of partner company offices yeah so uh, i was working out of unilever's office with uh, with another colleague um who uh, who wasn't part of the company but just came and used our meeting rooms um and then there was the team in in vice and it was about i suppose seven or eight months ago where we thought right we now need to find our own space um and we ended up in uh, somerset house down the road for a few months and we outgrew it, um, and then we end up here. Yeah. And Impact Hub has been has been great uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, because uh, we we wanted to be part of a network of organisations that um, that kind of inspire us. Yeah. Uh, because we are fundamentally all about two things. You know, number one stories and journalism and often these companies here at Impact Hub are doing cool things um, and are part of a bigger network of companies doing great things and secondly um, we're about community Uh, you know we're just even though a lot of our work is with these huge multinational companies part of the value for them is that we're bringing them together with social entrepreneurs with NGOs with academics sometimes etc and our ability to network and build a powerful community around these key topics like sustainable consumption or gender equality that is going to define how well we do our job so it wouldn't make sense to kind of be in a little office off on our own somewhere we we want to be part of something that's that's thriving and then also we end up kind of finding other companies to work with like yourselves yeah an yeah. added bonus <laughs> <laughs> yeah and how have you found the kind of the cultural difference because th- am i right in thinking that you originally you did work previously at Unilever, and now you've mm. you're coming your CEO of Flexibly. Um, so, how is what's the cultural difference like between working in a big multinational like that and then working in a kind of small, kind of yeah, more yeah, startup? Uh, yeah, sort of startup. Yeah, yeah. Business. Well, I mean, yeah. The the great thing, of course, is that is that because we are a startup, we make our own culture. So, yeah. um, so if the culture, if we find it unsatisfactory or odd or we've only got ourselves to blame <laughs> but it's um but now it's brilliant and and, I, and what i find um i suppose exciting is that we we bring in secondees from partner organizations so at the yeah. moment i have uh, a team member who's a um a permanent one year long secondee from wpp the yeah. advertising group uh we have another team member who is three days a week from bt um and and then we had some uh, short-term secondments at the end of last year from Unilever and from MS. and um, And the really exciting thing is when they come into the team is to start to see their reactions working the team because then we yeah. see how far we've come. Um, 
And what they always comment on, even though for me it's just completely normal now, is just the sheer pace of things. Yeah. Uh, that it really is, it's probably a bit of a cliche, but it really is a doing environment because yeah. there's just not much time to strategize because by the time you've sat there and strategized, the world has changed anyway and you're moving on to the next <laughs> thing. So, um, so we, do, we do experiment and we measure and we learn. Uh, we get things done uh, pretty fast. Um, uh, you know, the um, campaign on clean energy pre-COP21 that we did with your help you know, we started the planning six weeks before COP twenty one, and I think you'll remember it was <laughs> it was a fast paced brief. Yes. Um, I think it was probably one of the fastest paced projects we've yeah, worked on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which every now and then can lead to some slightly frayed nerves. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I think you know it's also just very you know uh, energizing for people, and they learn a whole new set of skills. Yeah, uh, which is you know how can I rather than, for example, mulling something in my head, just get it on paper quickly and get it out there, socialise it, agree it, do it, yeah. learn from it. Um, and I think that, so that's, that's a big part of our culture. And the other big part is, is just about the continual um, need to refine the art of collaboration. Yeah. You know, how do we, uh, as a really small team, you know, we are you know, 10 people, partner with 28 multinational companies yeah. and develop this community and have a day-to-day editorial cycle and all these things just means that our network and partnership management skills have got to be great and that drives culture as well because we're always out and about all over the place yeah yeah great so what are the um what, what's the sort of future vision for collectively because i think you've come quite a long way in what 15 months yeah so, yeah so um so what are you looking forward to in the next kind of year or two um well i think that you know, we've got two main, I suppose, thoughts in our minds. You know, one of them is that we do absolutely want to carry on building a big, engaged global audience and make that audience and penetrate the mainstream as much as we possibly can yeah. uh, with all of our stories um, to inspire people um, and often people who wouldn't normally come across content around sustainability. And, and I think the big move for us on that is to use the, I suppose, our, our skills in, in partnering to get more content out. Yeah. Um, so there's an example right now. We're partnering with Time Out London magazine. I don't know if you've seen it on your way yeah, by. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're guest editing their shopping and style section for, for a month. And that's a great way of getting our brand out into a new audience uh, yeah. of people. Um, Another example is that Vice Media have just shot a new um, uh, a pilot for a collective TV series, okay, uh, which they'll run on their new Viceland TV channel, yeah. which can be cool. Um, so that was shot in um, uh, in the slums of Lagos in New York, over on the West Coast with the Gates Foundation and various you know, parts of the world. So it's very exciting. Um, we're starting to build partnerships with various other you know, major millennial publishing digital platforms, again, just to be able to get our stories out. Because yeah. we don't really, to be honest, our website's not the big deal. It's about getting it to where people are. Yeah. So that's the big first thing. And then the last thing is, is all about these um, collaborative streams of work with partners. Yeah. Uh, so what success looks like is that by the end of this year, we'll have some strong... Uh, impactful streams of work around areas like uh, you know gender equality will be one um, I think the future of work and good work for millennials will be another 
um, and then we're trying to choose a third. And we want to see partners grouped around those using uh, their capabilities to, um, with their employees, pilot experiments and scale up in those areas where you know Facebook and Google can do what they do great and then you know we can bring in some other media organizations like a Huffington Post here or a yeah. Mashable there uh, partner I hope with on each of these work streams a foundation that helps to co-fund um, and then really just build the power of those collaborations over time to do more and more great things uh, with measurable impact. How, how much do you plan to engage your audience with those back with those streams? Is that yeah? Um, it is, and and actually that's a change from last year. So last year, while we were piloting those collectively lab workshops, um, they were very much behind the scenes, yeah. and nobody really knew we were doing it. Whereas going into this year, to your point, we'll actually start to blend a lot more the action that we're taking with our editorial in order to kind of bring it forward yeah. um, to our audience. And uh, yes, that should be um, exciting. So, you know, one of the first tangible things that we're doing in this year is um, on this stream of work called um, The Future of Work, we're doing a collectively uh, jobs fair, uh, all about the future of work and the future of jobs. Uh, which we're going to do with uh, uh, in the offices of Vice Media in Brooklyn in partnership with New York University yeah. and where a whole bunch of collectively partners are going to be bringing um, you know, really kind of generationally relevant, purposeful jobs to offer to these NYU students. And whilst we're there, we'll do some you know, workshopping, some insight work all around the future of work, etc. Yeah. And that will then kind of kick off this work stream for the year with our partners. Yeah, okay. That sounds really interesting. Mm. Yeah. So what's, um, just quickly, I mean, what's your, do you have any ideas on the future of work and uh, what what that might look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think, um, I suppose our, our kind of research to date suggests that a, a few things, you know, firstly, um, our audience don't want to leave their values at the door. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think they're, they're seeing that um, whereas previous generations, firstly, might have been willing to make a huge divide between their work life and their private life. This generation doesn't want to see so much of a divide. They've kind of eschewed suits and ties, yeah. uh, like yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're putting on their jeans and their hoodies, and they're saying, I want to be myself at work. And actually, yeah. when I bring myself into work, I want to bring my own sense of my values, if I've got a sense of mission and purpose, I want to yeah. be able to bring that to the workplace. And that probably is the biggest one uh, of all. And I think some of the really leading companies are getting really into how they can enable their employees to blend kind of a sense of values and purpose into their, their jobs and roles. Um, the second area, I think, is about um, uh, is actually about kind of workplace uh, diversity. Yeah. Um, and the third area, I think, is probably about flexibility. You know, in the I think it's been well kind of trailed now that you know this is a generation that doesn't necessarily want to be kind of fixed down to a kind of traditional working contract with the same employer. Yeah. You know, for year after year after year, there's much more of a willingness and a desire to take my skills and to be able to kind of use them against different kinds of projects in different maybe companies and different organizations on a much more fluid basis yeah um you know whether it's freelancing whether it's short-term contracts etc 
and that and secondments like you've got yeah, guys coming into yeah exactly because people want to be able to accumulate skills and experiences yeah. um, and uh, and that then asks questions about what the contract looks like it challenges what pension should look like in future it has all sorts of I think yeah, kind of implications yeah. in terms of how forward thinking companies should think about employing people and then and then retaining them or not as the case may be because maybe sometimes retaining is not what you want to do thank you very much Bill. great it's been a pleasure thank good. you very much